Welcome to episode 208 of Control the Controllables. And this is our second podcast short. This is coming from Tom Gullickson, the great Tom Gullickson. Now, I genuinely have never spoken to a storyteller like Tom. You know, he's incredible. You know, I'm fortunate that every now and then we speak on the phone and wherever I am, I drop everything because when Gully speaks, you listen. And this clip that we're going to share with you, get the tissues ready. There's tears. He shows the vulnerability to be able to share one of the most heartwarming, heartbreaking stories that you ever will about his brother, Tim, who was the late, great Tim Gullickson, who coached Pete Sampras. So listen out, enjoy the amazing storyteller that is Tom Gullickson. Tim and I played in the golden era of men's professional tennis. In 79, Tim Gullickson was ranked 18 in the world, and he was 11 in the U.S. He was even in the top 10. And now our number one player in the U.S. is ranked 25 or something in the world. You know, Isner, I think. Why? So, uh, Why though? That, so that's a. I can't yeah. let I can't let you go on that because that's a that's a massive topic. That is, you know, if we're talking yeah. about the dominance that it was then compared to for the size of the USA, the relative success that it does or doesn't have now. In my mind, every every kind of country has its own brand. You know, the U.S. isn't going to be Spain, and Spain's not going to be the U.S. and England's not going to be France, you know, and a lot of the federations have tried that. They've, they've hired people from other countries to try to inject kind of their kind of culture and brand, if you will. It doesn't work. And I told this to the USTA. I said, listen, you know, we were playing and we had all these great American players to, to battle with. Connors, you know, McEnroe. Dib, Solomon, Godfrey, Tanner, you know, you name it, Dickie Stockton. You know, we had a brand, you know, American tennis. Uh, what, did, what did it mean to, to play an American? American guys were really good athletes. They were great competitors. They were tough. They had really good kind of aggressive games, you know, even mm -hmm. within whatever style they played, they were playing to win. They were not playing not to lose. Yep. And so that was the brand. And I think a lot of places, they don't have a brand, you know, and Americans by nature are kind of aggressive. They're hardworking. They go for it. They dream big. They, that should be kind of the baseline of, of how you want to structure a program for American players. Yeah, and, I, and I feel that actually, I mean, obviously we, we spoke off air, I went to LSU and, mm -hmm. and before I went to LSU, I was probably ranked 50 or 60 in the world juniors mm -hmm. singles and top 10 in the world doubles. Mm -hmm. I thought I was rubbish. You know, I was in an environment where we had Martin Lee, who was world junior number one. We mm -hmm. had, you know, we had, we had good, good players who I was training with. And, and I think probably the, the UK, the, there's, we downplay things. We're a bit dour on certain things. And I went to America and everyone was like so upbeat and so mm -hmm. like, and I remember after, and it worked, worked for me after like three weeks, I was like, Oh my God, I'm, I'm good. 
I'm really yeah. good. You know, I, yeah. I felt it. And, and, and that brand that you're talking about, it was very clear to me. That was also mm-hmm. what a, what a college player did. Mm-hmm. You, you served big, you came forward, mm-hmm. you know, you looked to hit big forehands, you looked to finish at the net, you, exactly. you were aggressive the way you played doubles. And that was what back in 98. And again, that massively suited me. Do, mm-hmm. you, do you feel that that's not there anymore? Well, I, I think people have kind of lost their way a little bit. It was interesting. I love listening to Federer and Nadal and you know, joke. I love listening to all these kind of interviews and, and, you know, I love getting the players thinking. It's one thing to watch them play and they're all amazing players, but I love the process they go through the thought process and how great their minds are. And better said something really interesting and he's a hundred percent right. I think the question was, well, why aren't these guys beating you now? I mean, you and, and, and Nadal, you know, you're 38 or 39 and Nadal's 33, five, four or five and Djokovic is in his early 30s. These young guns should be beating you guys. You know, just like you started beating you know, the older players when you were coming up. And he said, you know, most of those guys hit the ball great, but they have no clue how to transition or finish at the net. You know, they have a very kind of one-dimensional game. And, you know, one of my own personal coaching philosophies and when I was director of coaching for the USTA, when I worked with the pros, my goal is to help create players who are aggressive all-court players. And I call it the three C's. I want you to be competent, confident, and comfortable in all three parts of the court, the back court, the mid court, which is a big mystery to a lot of players, and also the front court, which is normally where they go to shake hands and pick up the big cardboard check at the end of the tournament. They have no clue what the front court is about. They have a little bit of mystery about the mid court, uh, only hitting winners from the mid court. Maybe they can step up and whack a big forehand or something, but you know, most of our junior players now, you know, 95% of their tennis experience is just at the baseline, whacking balls as hard as they can with a set of Luxalon and, you know, strung kind of loose and swinging hard and ripping big topspin balls and maybe flattening out a higher one. But, uh, you know, there's, I don't think coaches and academies and federations spend enough time in skill development. When you look at Federer, you know, he goes to a court. If you, if you compare him to a bow hunter, okay, he goes out bow hunting and he's got 20 arrows in his quiver. And if one arrow, he misses with one, he grabs another arrow and shoots another arrow. So when he walks on a tennis court, he's got 20 arrows. This is something I learned from my late brother, Tim. He was big on this <laughs> quiver thing. He goes, you know, I want you to have a lot of arrows. I want you to have more arrows than the guy that you're playing against. And, you know, Timmy coached Sampras for five years and got him winning Wimbledon every year. Pete's record before he started working with Tim was two first round losses and one second round loss. Mm-hmm. He had no clue how to play on grass before he met Tim Gullickson. And, you know, Tim played me every day of his life. So nobody was better at returning a lefty serve because I had a good lefty serve. Tim, he played me every day. He had a great backhand return. He had the block. He had the nice chip. 
and he and he drove the ball, but he'd stay on the plane of the ball. He wouldn't come up on it too much. And Sampras, he would try to turn against a lefty serve, and his swing plane on his backhand return was almost straight up. Yep. And if a ball's coming 130 on a on a on a horizontal plane, and your racket is strings are going vertically up, the chances of those two meeting are not very good. So you know, when Timmy taught him how to return serve against a lefty and uh, won Wimbledon seven out of the next eight years. Yeah. So not, not, not a bad, not a bad uh, result there for, for young Pete Sampras. And, uh, you know, Timmy passed away at 44 in May of 96 and Pete actually put his, uh... take your time. Yeah, Pete uh, put his first Wimbledon trophy in the casket. And he said, Tim not only taught me how to be a Wimbledon champion, taught me how to be a winner in life. And Wimbledon was so touched by that. And obviously, you know, they took the trophy out and gave it to the family, Rosemary and the kids, Eric and Megan. Wimbledon, who's not in the habit of make it, making Wimbledon trophy replicas, they made Pete a replica of that trophy wow. because they were so touched by that. What an amazing! Thank you for sharing that story. And in and, and in terms of in terms of Tim, mm -hmm. and what I think some sometimes in life we we don't realize what we have until we lose it. And, right. and 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 you know we're talking now 25 years you know right. and, and how how much of an impact has Tim been for you over the last 25 years through not being here and and the lessons that he taught you and and your relationship that you obviously have had that's also been so special yeah well I still miss him every day um, think about him a lot and uh, you know there were kind of over 900 people at his funeral. So he obviously wasn't, you know, there's some people you meet that are real impact players. And, you know, Timmy, Timmy had a real positive impact. You know, he was, he was a hell of a player. He was a great competitor. And he didn't have that many arrows in his quiver. Yeah. But, you know, he would win his matches 8-6 in the fifth. He beat Ramirez one, one year on court two at Wimbledon, 8-6 in the fifth. He took out Johnny Mack in nice. 79, uh, uh, four, two, and four on, on wow. court, court two. And uh, I had lost to Johnny Mack in the third round that year. And so Timmy's playing Johnny Mack uh, in the round of 16 on court two. He's playing great. He always played great against lefties, you know. He's up six, four, six, two. 5-1, you know, just toying with him. 5-2, 5-3, serving for the match at 5-4, 15-40. He serves a second serve, and he stays back. And he was a serving volleyer right. of, of the highest order. Stays back, Mac hits that little bunt, backhand return that he used to hit, that block kind of bunt. Timmy takes a short ball, rips the approach, comes in, knocks off the volley, wins like six four in the in the third set, and um, 
people go nuts. Obviously, McEnroe was the second seed, I think, yeah. that year. And court two, of course, was called the graveyard court because yeah. the seeds didn't like playing there. And uh, Timmy goes in the press room after the match, and he goes, nobody beats the Gully brothers back-to-back. <laughs> Brilliant. Yeah, good stuff, you know. It, absolutely amazing. And 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 how how special was 1983, the, the year that you guys made a Wimbledon final together? That was fun because uh, we had gotten divorced the year before. We, we okay. spent, took a year off in 82. We had gotten a little stale and, you know, my singles had, had dropped a bit and I think he felt a little extra pressure to do really well in doubles because I wasn't doing so well in singles at the time and he was playing much better singles than me. So we kind of took a year off and, and that year was kind of fun playing with different players because obviously, as you know, Dan, being a, a good doubles player, you, you pick up you know, bits and pieces from everyone you play doubles with. You know, and if you can find one little nugget from everybody you play with, you know, you, it just adds to your overall ability as a doubles player. And then we got back together in 83, had a great year. Uh, you know, we won the two warm up tournament. We won Queens and right, we won okay. Bristol. And yeah, then, yeah. Uh, and then, you know, we ended up losing to Johnny and, uh, and Peter Fleming, you know, in the final, but, uh, it was pretty uh, special, you know, where here we are, two boys from La Crosse, Wisconsin, who'd never mm. had a private lesson and never played a national junior tournament, getting our runner-up uh, medals uh, from, from the Duke and Duchess of Kent, you know? And Timmy looks over at me with this great smile that he had, and he goes, not bad for a couple of small-town boys from Onalaska, Wisconsin. Amazing. So we, uh, we enjoyed that. Yeah, that was great. <laughs> Nobody can ever take those memories away from you, Tom, no. you know, and it's uh, as, and I know it, it is a, an emotive topic and I think, you know, it's so lovely hearing the stories on Tim, you know, and I think everyone in, in the tennis world followed obviously the story with Pete Sampras so closely. And if we, you know, we go back to 1995, mm -hmm. you know, the Australian open, right. you know, when, you know, Pete was, Pete was in tears on the court and right. how, how was that moment? I guess at, at, the, at the time, did you know how ill he was at the time? What was, yeah, well, he, had, you know, uh, unfortunately, and we had, you know, I had real fears in 94. I mean, it happened to him twice in 94. He, uh, he, he had an incident in a, in the hotel room in Stockholm where he was ordering a transport car and, uh, you know, the, the house phone in his hotel room, I think at the grand they were staying was on a, like a plate glass table and he, and he kind of had a seizure and he fell against the plate glass table and cut up his face. And, yeah. and he somehow, you know, must've passed out, but he crawled out to the hallway and Bob Brett, who unfortunately passed away, re you know, recently, who was a great guy and a great coach. Bob Brett was like going to his room and he saw Tim and they you know, got him to the hospital right away. And, and uh, unfortunately, they never checked his brain. They checked his heart. And like a lot of pro athletes, he had a little bit of an enlarged heart. And they thought it was some kind of a heart issue, but they never really did a brain scan. 
And then fast forward six weeks, Timmy's with Pete over in Germany uh, at the ATP finals. You know, Tim's lovely wife, Rosemary, was an intensive care nurse before she became a lawyer. And he was speaking to her on the, on the phone from the hotel and he started garbling his words. So he, she immediately knew he was having a seizure. So she hung up and called the hotel and sure enough, they went up to the room and he was having another seizure. So they got him to the hospital there. So he'd already had two incidents. And then I was actually with him because, uh, you know, I was with Tim and I think Pete was playing his second round match at the Australian. We were in the locker room and he didn't really look good. And uh, right before Pete went out to play his second round, you know, Tim had a seizure, you know, you know kind of like a, like an epileptic fit almost or in the locker room. And, and the, fortunately the, the, the hospital is only five minutes, you know, from Melbourne park. So we got him to the hospital right away and they did take a brain scan. And, and unfortunately the doctor gave me the terrible news that he kind of thought it was brain cancer. And those four spots looked like four tumors, you know, but couldn't confirm that. Um, until you take a biopsy, of course, and take a little yeah. piece of it out. And they certainly weren't going to do that there. So I actually stayed in the hospital with him uh, for like three or four nights. And uh, the last night we were there, um, you know, and Pete was obviously really upset and everybody was upset because Tim, Tim was a pretty popular guy. And uh, we were getting a lot of visitors. And uh, the night before I flew him back to Chicago, uh, the doctor said, well, why don't you, uh, Tim's pretty heavily medicated. Uh, he's not really in danger of having another seizure. So why don't you get him out of the hotel and go to dinner? So I got a, a group of very special close friends like Ian Hamilton, who was a Nike guy, who was great friends of Tim and I, and Todd Martin, uh, who was a close friend of mine and Tim's. And, you know, I coached Todd for a while through the USTA. And uh, Jim Courier, who was very close to, to, to me and Tim and Pete. And we all went out to dinner and just to show our support for Tim, you know. And uh, Pete and Jim were playing against each other the next day. Right, okay. Clearly, they were real rivals uh, for Grand Slam titles. So, you know, they were friends and they really respected each other on and off the court. But they weren't exactly hanging out. They all had their own little teams, you know, that they spent time with. And, uh, yeah, well, I'll never forget. We went out to the, a really nice restaurant for dinner and just Timmy was there and just you know, everybody was just there, you know, to support him, you know. And then the, the next day I, I flew him back to Chicago and then he had the, he had a biopsy to, to see what was in, in there. And sure enough, it was brain cancer, you know. And then that, that day, that was the day that I think Pete and Jim played in the quarterfinals. Okay. Mm. And, and such, such a tragic, tragic story, Tom. And I think, but what a lovely memory that you're able to have to to be able to have have that mm -hmm. time with with those players and 
And one thing that was that, that really sprung to mind when I was looking into into your career a little bit more before before this talk mm-hmm. was that you then went on to win the Davis Cup with USA mm-hmm. in 1995. Right. You then went on to be Team USA captain when Andre won won the gold medal in 1996. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know how I guess how were you able to cope at that time with that going on? And then how special were those victories almost that, that I'm sure at the time were very much dedicated to Tim as well? No doubt. No, I, I leaned on Tim a lot for advice, especially with Pete, because I mean, Tim and Pete had a really special bond. I mean, yeah. not only, you know, did, did Tim really teach Pete a lot about tennis. He taught him a lot about, how to compete. He, he put the compete in Pete. Yeah. He added the COM part, you know, yeah. and uh, he, he told Pete one time, he goes, you know what? Cause Pete was, uh, he was an artist. He wasn't like a more mechanical player like Lendl or Courier who yeah. were out doing grills, you know, six hours a day. And, you know, he, he was an artist. He had to like feel the ball. And he told Timmy, you know, who got up to 15 in the world being an amazing competitor. You know, he told Tim when they first started, he goes, you know, you know, some days I just don't feel the ball, you know, I don't feel the ball. And on the days where I'm not striking the ball, I'm not saying that I, I accept losing, but I almost kind of feel like I'm going to lose. Tim just kind of looked at him and he goes, dude, (laughs) he goes, you have every shot in the book. You're an unbelievable athlete. You're one of the top three or four athletes on the tour in terms of movement and jumping and, and just dynamic, you know, balance. And, and, you, and you've got incredible hands. You can do anything with the ball. He goes, on the day, he kind of grabbed, he had like a white T-shirt on, right? And so he, he kind of grabbed Pete by the collar. And he goes, he goes, Pete. That's not acceptable. As long as I'm coaching you, that's 100% not acceptable. On the days where you're not feeling it, where you're not Mr. Artist, like striking the ball really clean, he said, take this little white Palos Verdes collar off and put your blue collar on and beat the guy being an athlete and a competitor. You're not always going to have your A tennis game. So on the days, you know, there's, there's the three pieces right there. There's a tennis player as an athlete, as a competitor, and, uh, you know, and you got the, the actual tennis game. Yeah. But beat him as an af- a competitor, beat him with your physicality, be a better athlete than this guy. Yeah. And, uh, you know, Pete really learned how to compete. You know, that was one of the great gifts that, that Tim added to Sanford's game, other than the technical skills of, like, how to return serve and how to play against lefties. I mean, Pete couldn't beat a lefty. I mean, in in the 91, I think, Davis Cup final, we lost to France, and he lost to LeConte and Forger, both in straight sets, you know, because he couldn't return a lefty serve. And then after Timmy started coaching Pete and teaching him how to hit a backhand return and teaching him how to play against lefties in terms of positioning and the the patterns and everything that you totally have to switch against a lefty, Pete's record with against lefties after that was like 45 and 0 or something. Some ridiculous. Right, okay. He was like never lost to a lefty. So 
So Timmy taught Pete a lot of lessons, you know, just tennis lessons and then off court stuff as well. Tim treated everyone the same. He would teach, treat Leo, the locker room guy at Wimbledon, the yeah. same as Phil Knight, the CEO of Nike. You know, he had a, had a nice word for everyone. You know, there's something about speaking to Tom and I've told that story to, to many people and it's quite an incredible skill because when I tell that story, I fill up with emotion. I I get goosebumps and, and, and I I feel like I was there with him. His, his ability to get you transfixed into his world is 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 really truly incredible and obviously this has been quite a, a therapeutic process going through all of these old podcasts and picking out the, the some real key moments that we want to share with you and and once again it's hit every emotional note uh, I, I thank Tom again for for sharing that story for sharing his insight his knowledge and I hope you enjoyed that wherever you are Thanks again for listening. Please do give us some feedback. Are you enjoying the podcast shorts? You know, can you jump onto your podcast platform? Give us a rating. Give us a review. Let us know what you think. But wherever you are in the world, enjoy this festive period that is coming up. I hope you get to spend lots of quality time with your families. But until next time, I'm Dan Kiernan, and we are Control the Controllables. <laughs>